Hello, this is the Black and Asian Therapist Network podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's interested in the internal psychological world from a black and Asian perspective. Barton Network is where black and Asian therapists share their passion and their expertise. My name is Eugene Ellis. I'm a psychotherapist and founder of Barton. These podcasts are a continuing conversation around the psychological life of black and Asian people in the UK. These podcasts are to support all therapists and mental health workers in their work with their black and Asian clients. This is the seventh of eight podcasts where I'll be presenting recordings of therapists who've given talks at Barton conferences over the years. The speaker for this podcast is Gloria Gordon. She spoke at the 2011 Barton conference. Dr. Gloria Gordon is the author of Towards Bicultural Competence, Beyond Black and White. She is a lecturer at the South Bank University and founder of the Centre for British African Caribbean Studies, which aims to facilitate understanding of the issues that underpin the black and white binary divide. In her talk, Gloria starts off by sharing aspects of her early life as a child and how she developed a false self in order to manage the conflicting expectations of her mother and her life at school being a black child, and how these contradictions carried over into her working life. As she raised her own children, she noticed that they were going through the same thing. She had to deeply examine where this was all coming from. It dawned on her that there was something that she was doing that she was not aware of, and then went into an existential crisis, as she describes it, She felt like she was fighting for her life. She went from compliance and keeping her head down to hating British society. She did everything to fit in. She had all the qualifications and still she was struggling with what it meant to be black. So started her journey. She talks about her experience of therapy and finding the right therapist. That triggered for her the process that led her to transformation and becoming more fully human. Through inquiry into herself, she recognised the importance of culture and that we become who we are through cultural socialisation. She has interesting things to say about the term culture and calls herself Black African Caribbean, which describes that she has been influenced and shaped by these cultures. Gloria also describes several theoretical models that describe the process she undertook, which she offers others as a guide through the process and as her legacy. Here is Gloria Gordon. Um, thank you very much, Eugene, for inviting me. Um, I'm very happy to be here today with you. My normal setting is completely different from this. I work at London South Bank University, and I've worked there for the last 20-odd years. Um, I'm a lecturer in the management department of the business school. But I've also um, research director, like Eugene said, of a centre for British African Caribbean Studies. That's a completely brand new centre, my own initiative, and it's based on the experience of being black in Britain, having to work through that process of understanding what it means to be black other than what other people attribute 
to me or what the university says. You know, all, all of, everybody knows who you are to the point that you don't know who you are anymore. And, and that was, you know, I found myself in that state whilst working at South Bank University. And I found myself in extreme crisis. You know, South Bank has got a reputation of being a university that's a pioneer university for the entrance of black and minority ethnics into higher education. And so you would assume that they have some reputation for understanding the issues that these groups face. But in fact, they don't. And like when I was recruited, of course, they need faces to represent that mission. <laughs> and I just found myself in this situation where everybody was looking on me for something. Students thought I was there to meet their needs. My white colleagues thought I was there to be the buffer between them and the needs of the students. I didn't know who I, I was myself. I was totally confused and I really went into a state of crisis and wanted to run away desperately. And I also witnessed so many people running and something in my own spirit said to me, you can't run. And if you run, where are you going to run to? You've got to stay here and you need to work through this. And, and really, um, this book, Towards Bicultural Competence, Beyond Black and White, it sort of encapsulates, I guess, what I learned over 20 years as I decided that I was now going to engage with what it means to be black in Britain. And I did try, before I decided, made that decision, to enter therapy. My first encounter with therapy was through my doctor. And I remember being so embarrassed at the doctor's surgery, because as far as I know, black people don't go to therapy. And so you know, I, was, I wouldn't even sit down inside. I was kind of lurking around the corner for when, as if everybody knew that I was going to see this person. <laughs> that one, it didn't work. It was a white woman therapist, and her mode was very cold, there was like a mask down, and she would just sit there and just sort of stare at me. So I kind of sat there and stared back. <laughs> and, you know, after 10 weeks, she said, well, she said, I don't know who was um, assessing who, and I think you have an issue with power. So I left that one, I thought, I'm never going back there again. But the crisis got worse. So I then found another therapist, but this time it was a black one that was recommended. And with her, I had gone with so much baggage, and I felt she was putting so much more baggage onto me. And I just, you know, so I left that one very quickly. <laughs> I didn't, I, yeah, very, very quick I left that one. I went to a third one. And this third one actually was very good. And I only saw her for a very short time. And, but she literally just asked me questions and pushed me to think and find answers for myself. And I think she helped me to trigger the process that I then went on to undergo. So, uh, you know, um, finding the right therapist is difficult. But my personality is very much, I'm a self-therapist and my life was in crisis. A couple of hours a week wasn't enough for me. I just needed total makeover. I'm one of the children who came here in the 
1959, I arrived in this country. My dad came in 1954. He came the year that I was born, but he came before my birth. So I never met him until I came in 59. My mother left us with relatives, and then she came. And um, then my sister and I traveled together. I was just five, my sister was just seven, and we traveled together, and we just entered this strange environment, which I've never actually come to grips with, to be honest with you, because it was like walking into another world where people perceive you completely differently. I mean, sometimes I'm really glad that I was born in Jamaica, and I had that five-year gap. So you're not completely immersed in what is an abnormal culture, and you try to make yourself normal in it. My experience, I think, builds on, it's a completely other experience, it's of a child who was immersed in the school system. Our parents weren't able, didn't know how to engage with them, so they'd go in, the teacher's good, they're going to do everything, you must listen to what the teacher says, you know, and, and but I was this reflective child, and so I, I was reading life, and I could see the teachers didn't like black children. They had a problem with them. The black children were sort of vibrant. They would talk loud. They were, you know. So I quickly learned, actually, they didn't like that. So shut down. You know, you know and I was always looking. So I, could, I saw if an eye went up. I saw when they looked at each other. And so I learned to modulate my behavior to suit them. Um, and so I developed a false self. And that thought self um, saw me. I was successful at it because um, I became my teacher's pet. And I was then, when I went to secondary school, I was put in a top academic group. But my, my pain, my loss, that separation increased. And I was very much aware of it, that I didn't fit in anywhere. I didn't fit in with the black kids that I was trying to avoid so that I didn't get dumped into an ESN school. But I didn't also fit in with the, my white peers because they saw me. A classic incident is when um, they said... Uh, we're in a dinner queue and some, um, we were right at the top, me and my white friends, and this black girls just barged to the front and, you know, we're going to be first. And they looked at them and said, those ignorant black bastards. And then, because I'm there, so, then they looked around and must have seen something on my face. And they said, not you, Gloria, you're different. But of course I wasn't, I'm not different. And, you know, so those situations, they, um, they were making their Im impression on me and they were shaping who I was becoming. And so throughout my school life, I say that I was unconsciously assimilated as a black member of the society. And I lived in this limbo world between the two groups and just trying all the time to, and never fitting in, but trying to. And in the process, I became like a witness of the society. And I also became an elective mute. You know, somebody who won't talk. Because, you know, if you say something... Because I knew a lot, and if I said it, I might say the wrong thing, I'd be in trouble. Because a few times I did say something, I did get in trouble. I know, and people also, my false self, my teachers would come to accept that. And so if I try to be in a different... Not you, Gloria, we don't expect that from you, you know? And even into my work life, I just carried on with those contradictions. And then I had my children, 
stopped having children. And do you know what? I sent them to private schools, doing everything to protect them from this. And guess what happened? Exactly the same thing. You think, where's all this coming from? And then, you know, and it just dawned on me that it's you. It's actually you. Because you're, there's something that you're doing that you're not aware of. And I went into what I call an existential crisis of meaning. I wanted to die, but I, by this time I had three sons. I hated this society. I didn't, didn't know why my parents never brought me here, why God had brought me here, what's this life work. I remember feeling as if like I was a, a prostitute. I'd done everything to fit in. I'd got all the qualifications, and still I was struggling with what it means to be black. And so I started this journey of what does it mean to be black. And it was a journey, I used action research, action inquiry, which requires you not just to study an object or, or something like that, but you also have to engage with yourself and your own processes. And to be honest with you, that's the first time I can say I consciously became aware of having a self. And, and actually, you know, I had the capability to be responsible for my own life. And I did not like what began to unfold. When I was going to my sessions, I could only go there. I would wrap up in loads of coats. And I'd sit there, my arms folded like this, trying to protect and hide myself. People asked me, what were you doing there? I would make up some story because I couldn't tell them about the depths of the shame and the humiliation that I'd felt from the experience of being black in Britain. And my research, which um, I started off at the master's level, and what I found I had to do was to unlearn everything that I'd learned. And I, had, I started from scratch again. I went right back to stuff we never touch. I went back to study cosmology, psychology, philosophy, metaphysics, everything so I could find out for myself. I felt that this society had not taught me the truth, and especially the truth about what it means to be human. It had simply placed the label on me and left me to wallow. In, in, in whatever that cesspit that's been created for black and minority ethnics in the society. And so um, my research focused human inquiry, not black inquiry, because if I did black inquiry, I'd have gone down another path. There was human inquiry. And I learned how to be attentive to myself. Um, and I really, what I wanted to do, because at the time I wanted to die, I, I realized that actually I felt as if my life had been wasted. And I thought, well, if I use my life, I can use it to learn from it and to create a legacy for future generations. And so that's how my research started. It was creating a gener generative legacy for future generations of black children, young people in British society. And the key thing what I had done, I had taken my eye off the society. I'd taken my eye off white people. It was now Gloria. It was now me as a person. And, and that shift was so important. It tells you what is at the heart of the black-white duality, as I call it. Because when you're caught up in that duality, you can only see yourself relative to the other. You do not exist in your own right as who you are. And so from that, I moved from object 
subject. And I moved in terms of my paradigm, the whole way that I thought actually changed. And with that change, I think it crystallized for me the power of culture. And, and this is the book, and when I wrote the book, I thought I was going to write it and run, because it's quite a personal book. In one chapter, one chapter, the second chapter, I give you vignettes from my life. And in some, to, some, to some extent, not, no, not to some, to a great extent, I, I, I was really embarrassed about, I felt as if I'd been a fool. Why hadn't I known this? But even now as I look around in a society, you can see that a lot of us still don't know these things. And I thought I need to be brave enough to put it in the book, and I was going to put it in there and then run, so that I wouldn't get any criticisms and any feedback or anything. But what I learned was really about culture. I did what I did, because I didn't know, when I started my research, I was researching what it means for me to be black. And over time, I suddenly realized we come, become who we are through cultural socialization. It's through that process you become who you are. And then I started looking for black culture. And then I started thinking, well, African culture must be black culture. Or Jamaican culture must be black culture. And of course it's not. But you see, if you don't engage with these things, you don't know, you just accept them. And when I got groups of people together and said, well, let's define what black culture is. Of course, nobody could define it. They would say, well, it's Aki and Saltfish. It's, you know, I says, well, no, it's, that's not, no, it's something more than that. And then you begin to realize that actually black culture is a subculture of British culture, yeah? It's either I'm from, I've got Jamaican culture, I've got African, you know, Nigerian culture, but who knows what black culture is? What does it mean? What's its roots? And I c- couldn't find any. And then I realized, and then I, then I started talking with people, and I started talking with academics, and all of a sudden it became clear that every, everybody knew, but nobody ever talked about it. And so I, I progressed the research. And if you, the Office of the National Statistics here, because some people say we're going to, um, all this racial thing is going to end soon. Yeah? But if the Office for the National Statistician, they divide the population of the society into three groups. Whites, who are the majority group, Blacks and minority ethnics. Now, in the past, when people talked about black and minority ethnics, I thought it meant all of us who aren't um, white, all of us must be black and minority ethnics. But then I realized, I found out through the research, that actually blacks refers to Caribbean people, descendants of enslaved Africans. Yeah, and minority ethnics are those people who have a distinct culture, language, traditions, and religion from somewhere else that doesn't fit into British culture. And so they're minority ethnics. So in fact, in Britain then, it's a power differential between those who are white and those who are black. It was a power differential that was put in place during slavery. And when we hear people today saying this still things like slavery, it's because that relationship is still in place and it's, it's operating 
uninterrupted because we've been in it now for so long that it's become normalized what they call and all of this let me tell you is in the literature except a lot of us never access it it's in there they call it reciprocal role relating behaviors you know so a white person says this so i'm going to react that way it's like the psychic drama that keeps on being repeated again and again and i found myself that i was part of that and where my shame was coming from, after all the years of witnessing, of course I was aware of that deep inside of me. M- might not want to admit it at the conscious level, but I was aware of a lot of the issues. And I knew it was fear, it was I wanted to protect myself, wanted to make sure I keep my job so I could keep my house, so that, you know, I, I like a peaceful, quiet life. I'm not very confrontational. So, you know, let me avoid all of that. Just keep quiet. Just pretend as if you don't know. And, but it came, it came at me, and it came at me in such a way that I couldn't actually um, cope with it anymore. Members of the black, who I have identified as black British or black Caribbeans, um, Seligman has come up with this idea of um, learned helplessness. I don't know if any of you have come across that idea. It's learned helplessness, he calls it a mental state in which people feel that they, they're not capable, they can't do things. And I would say in the black Caribbean, in the black culture, it's socialised helplessness. It's been going on for generations and we're caught up in this duality where you have whites on top of blacks and we have created quite an oppositional relationship. And if you study, say, the interactions, for example, of Africans and Europeans, or the British, you will see it's completely different from the interaction of a Caribbean person and, and British people. And that's because of the nature of the relationship we've had with them over hundreds of years. And I began to see that in my own self and in my own workplace. I began to notice the lack of confidence, the lack of self-efficacy that I had. And in what context did this arise? And to see that actually it's, it's with my colleagues. Because somehow this psychic drama is taking place and unconsciously I'm taking the move to make my step and then they come in, they take their step and, and we just keep it going. And I thought, well, actually I now need, now that I understand this, I need to contradict them. And I have to say it took a lot of courage on my part and I had to take a lot of steps backwards to avoid backlash and so on. I bought some of the slides for you. So I've got some definitions of culture on there. Culture is not static. You cannot take it as if you know it. You cannot think that because, you know, I'm Jamaican culture or I'm African culture, you cannot take it like that. Culture is something which is flexible, which is adaptable. It's ongoing all the time in our lives. And even as you're here, some people don't want to identify with Britain, but you're British if you have lived here for, you know, and you're a part of the society. You know, they talk about cultural beliefs. They say, why are children, why students fail in school? They talk about unquestioned cultural beliefs. Do you know a lot of our young people, especially um, black British young people, black Caribbean, and also what they call mixed heritage children, they, in schools they're diagnosed as suffering from BESD, behavioural, emotional and social difficulties. 
if you study the relationship we've had with the British, where we're in this position and where we don't have a functional group for ourselves, we're dependent on them, you would understand actually where all the problems come from. It's, it's, it's a societal problem. It's not an individual or a community problem. It's a societal one. So what I decided was that I needed to re-socialize myself. I needed to recreate. I needed to become somebody completely different from that old Gloria. And the only way to do it was to live this new way every day of my life. It's not, you know, get some big charter and put up there and feel good about it. But it's every relationship, every interaction, it was about me now being a different person. And it was me understanding what it means for me to be a whole, fully alive, experiencing and choiceful human being. And most people who identify as black don't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't. I can now see, at the time when I came to this conclusion, I, I recognised all the slave behaviours in me. They were all there, yeah? And when I saw that, and so everything, I then thought, well, actually, if, if I respond this way, what outcome will that get me? And I had to contradict a lot of my behaviours. I had to take the time to realise that to be human means that you're vulnerable, means that you will make mistakes, and allow myself to make the mistake. It was when my colleagues come talking to me in particular ways to remind them that I'm not actually black, you know. And, you know, it was amazing to see how quickly they jumped back because they understood what I meant. Because, you know, now I call myself British African Caribbean. And that says that... I have been influenced by three cultures, British culture, African culture, and Jamaican or Caribbean culture. All, all, every culture, every people have good and have bad in them. And so I've chosen to take the good from the three cultures and to remould myself on that. And so anybody who wants to know what British, African, Caribbean culture is needs to talk to me. You see, but if people don't talk to you when you're black, they think they know, and they treat you in particular ways. And so from that, I've developed, I've been gathering knowledge for the last 20 years, and I've developed what's called a formative learning center, with all this wonderful knowledge about what it means to be a human being. And, you know, because you know, I'm fascinated. You've always heard everybody saying how, one, you know, how wonderful the human being is, how magnificent we are. And I think, well, where is it? Why aren't we seeing it? And it's only when you're educated to understand this, you then realize how much of who we are is actually on lockdown and being locked down through the type of education we undergo. And I developed a new learning and teaching philosophy, um, human-centered, unconditional, passionate appreciation. In all my classes, my classes are completely different from all of my colleagues because I integrate formative learning with informative. You know, when you go to uni, they give you all this just knowledge, information, boom, boom, boom. And you, you, you can't even take it in. And then you come back and you have to um, literally, you, you regurgitate it for, for exams and then you forgot it's gone. You see, but I, I, now I integrate formative 
you know, actually what it means to be human. What knowledge do you need? And so people can integrate it. And I don't do exams. My students do coursework and, and process work. And I also introduce horizontal, um, vertical learning, consciousness learning. Because most of the lessons we get is to fit in to society. Here's your place. People are socialized to fit in. I said, no, there is higher levels of awareness. That's the real purpose of human life, to evolve and to get to this higher place. So, so what I had to do was to um, do a cultural analysis on Britain. And this, this has made sometimes my work not very popular. Because you see, when we talk about black and minority ethnics, Britain feels safe because you've separated yourself. Yeah? You're saying, that's you, and this is us. And so they're safe because nobody's looking at them. But when I realized that I was neither Jamaican nor African because I'd not been socialized in either of those places, I had not been inducted into those cultures. The culture that I'd been inducted into was British culture. And so then, that's when my gaze turned to Britain. Can you imagine my shock? <laughs> because, you know, all of my life I thought, you know, oh, well, it's, it's, it's Jamaica or it's, you know, and it's, you know. And then suddenly... Britain, is this what you've been doing? Is this how you've thrown me into this crisis? And it, it, it suddenly made sense because many people don't realise that one of the reasons black children underachieve in schools is because they don't have a functioning community who has developed a culture that says this is who we are, a culture in terms of identity. And so, you know, if we had one, you know, who is a black child? Everybody knows in Britain, trouble, underachiever. If, if we had a British African Caribbean community, we would say our child is an achiever. They, um, we got, you know, Nobel Peace Prize winners, you know, we, we would have some goal, some aim. Because human beings, it's the shaping of your consciousness that determines who you are. And nobody is shaped, well, yes, somebody is shaping the consciousness of black people. And we know a lot of it is, is negative. And it also occurs, you know, to a lesser extent, because working in the university, I also found that um, I work with people across the range. And everybody, all the students, once you're classified as black or ethnic minority, there's a drip, drip, drip effect in terms of your confidence and in terms of, in, in terms of who you are. And Britain, I, I realised as well, Social distance strategies. This idea of race and the existence of blacks and whites. There is only one human race. So why do we keep on, you know, black race, white race? That's not true. And so, you know, we really need to kind of re rethink language as well. There are no blacks and whites, apart from when you're trapped in that psychic drama. Race taboo. This subject is... is um, part and parcel of this society, but dare we talk about it? You know, in, you know, it took me a lot of courage for me to start talking about this openly in the university context. 
racialized emotions. If this, you know, if this room was full of my white colleagues, I'd probably talk in a completely different way because I have to protect their emotions and the way they respond. Because, you know, I get triggered if they start saying something which I think is unfair, but they equally become triggered. White silence. They won't talk about the topic. Black complicity, we don't talk about it either because we want to protect ourselves. They call it the rhetorical ethic. You know, this talk about meritocracy, justice, equality of opportunity. The author who came up with this, she calls it culturally structured hypocrisy. You know, when you keep, you know, you, somebody says you've got this, so you keep trying to get it, and it's, it's just never happening. Political correctness. Apparently, if I say to somebody, you might all have heard about the case in the paper the other day where a woman referred to um, somebody as a coconut. And she was, I think, was she imprisoned or was she fined heavily? Because apparently it was, it's an abusive term. And so, you know, so even talking about these issues is now becoming difficult. Control of education. Certainly, I haven't, it's only in my adulthood that I was in control of my own education. And I, I think, for me, the problem in Britain is not about race at all, it's about ethnic loyalties. And we see it with all the different groups. And this black socialization. You get young people, even myself, I wrote, I wrote an um, article, as I've been published, put myself down as African Caribbean. The person crossed it out and put Afro-Caribbean. Yeah? Um, so it's about who determines also your identity. Young people at the university, um, one student was sharing the experience of her, her son coming home saying, Mummy, I'm Nigerian. And she says, who told you you're Nigerian? He said, the teacher told me I'm Nigerian. He's Ghanaian. Yeah? You know, and other young people in their 20s, one young, young woman said, um, I always thought I was African-Caribbean because the teacher told me that. So, you know, it means that we have an identity issue that needs to be taken care of. And I, I developed this model for myself. When we're all born, and it's based on other research, we're born um, on the first quadrant, unconsciously, biculturally incompetent, and we need our parents, we need our teachers to educate and socialise us into life. But what happens if your parents are ignorant, if they don't know, if your teachers are ignorant, if they're the blind leading the blind, where do you go? Down the bottom, asleep. You fall, you're, just, you're walking around like a zombie, and you're walking around in this state of, oh, life is awful, I just, I'm depressed, you know, oh, the government this, oh, that person that, and all the rest of it. And... For, for the majority of my life, I existed on that unconscious quadrant. I was only through making the decision to engage with the challenges of what it means to be black, rather than taking on the label and walking around as if I'm black, walking around feeling as if I'm a victim, um, feeling as if I've got no power because the society makes me feel that. And... I, Engaging with it, facing up to it, um, caused a shift in me and pushed me onto the, the conscious quadrant where I became really awake to all of these issues and to, the, and to develop the ability to work with them. And really, you know, from my point of view, 
In the 21st century, in a global world, this is a type of education we now need. It's an education which actually does not collude with the society in terms of the division of people into these groups, but it's actually now educating people to understand what it means to be whole, fully alive, experiencing, and life is a challenge. Let's live to the challenge instead of finding some corner to hide. Telling our children, I heard one colleague tell her son, if you just keep your head down, you'll be okay. And, you know, so for me, I guess the thing I'd want to leave with you is that um, I also developed this model of the five-dimensional human being to realize that the society assesses people and me only on the physical. They look at me and then they think they know me. That's true. I'm much more complex. And I need to know all of these as well. So that I know that I have choice. That I know what the purpose of life is. That I know that my identity is not fixed. But, you know, we need to go through the identity formation process. And be choiceful. And think not just about ourselves, but to think about a global world. Because once we're left in a survival mode of black people, you really haven't got no time to think about anything else. Because you're too busy surviving. Start to think and live as a human being. And you transcend that. And I think it's Einstein who says that a problem cannot be resolved at the same level of consciousness as that at which it was created. And so, you know, and the only, the, what I had to do, and I did, one day, you know, I turned up at work. I was going to do something. I was going to just stand up to something. And as I was walking into the university and I looked at my feet, I had two different foot of shoes on. <laughs> yes, because I, I, you know, but, but I, I, I learned to begin to challenge myself. I, you know, I knew this is fear. This is something that's been fixed and rooted in you. And you can unroot it. And so my job in the university now is um, all of my units, I give the students a different type of education. And in fact, as much as I've been challenged and people have been upset with me, last year all of my units were commended by the external examiners who said that they're the way forward. And if Southbank is genuine about employability opportunities that they need to do more of this type of work. And, you know, it's, it's, it's you, though. It was me. Unless I had done that personal work, I could not do this larger work. And so each of us, when we're going to take care of our clients, we need to take care of ourselves. Thank you. That was Gloria Gordon giving a talk on Towards Bicultural Competence Beyond Black and White. Thanks for those of you that have emailed me with their comments and thoughts. It's great to hear from you. If you're feeling inspired, why not record your comments about any of the talks or the podcasts in general on your phone, on your computer, anywhere, and send them to me for inclusion on a future podcast. Just to let you know, Barton is running a training in London on working with diversity in counselling on the 6th of October 2012. Aileen Allen, who featured in the last podcast, who spoke on intergenerational trauma, will be facilitating the day. And if you want to attend, find out more about Barton, or just to send me a comment, you can email me, eugene at barton.org.uk. 
or you can visit us at our website www.baatn.org.uk I hope you can join me next time when I'll be presenting a recorded talk from counsellor and consultant Luke Daniels who will explore the issues of working with perpetrators of domestic violence. Until then, goodbye.